It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Vanessa Bryant thanked the fans as thousands gathered to celebrate the lives of her husband, Kobe Bryant, and their daughter, Gianna, at L.A. Staples Center after their deaths in a helicopter crash in January of 2020. The outpouring of love and support that my family has felt from around the world has been so uplifting. Now Bryant is taking on Los Angeles County in federal court, saying her privacy was invaded when sheriff's deputies and firefighters shared crash site photos with their friends and colleagues. Joining me is Warrington Parker, a partner at Crowell and Mooring. Explain what her causes of action are. She is suing over three different things. One is the invasion of her right to privacy, that is, that people have a right to privacy as to photos and content of materials relating to the death of a loved one. The second is negligence, that L.A. County and the Sheriff's Department, the Fire Department, and the individuals negligently disclose these materials, which are the photos of Kobe Bryant and his daughter. And then the third is a statutory claim. It's called a Section 1983 action, which is that constitutional due process rights were violated by the disclosure of the various photographs. Are any of these claims unique in this kind of situation? It is certainly unique. This doesn't happen every day. But in reading the various papers, there appears to be cases that have dealt with these issues before. And part of the legal tension in the case is, are these claims viable? And certainly the defendants are saying that they're not viable. For example, defense are saying it's not enough just to have a private photo. Instead, there needs to be more publicity, such as it being on the Internet and so on. And Ms. Bryant's counsel has pointed out that, in fact, there are cases where it does not need to be made public, that this is enough. I think that legal tension may underlie this. That may be an issue in part going to the jury, but mainly that's going to ultimately be an issue for the courts. A primary issue in the case is whether she suffered emotional distress as a result of the county's actions and how much she should be compensated for that. So Los Angeles County officials are arguing, one thing they're arguing is that she suffered emotional distress from the death of her husband and daughter. 
rather than distress that the photos were leaked. How can a jury separate those? Well, emotional distress damages are always a very difficult thing, both to prove and to disprove, right? It's just how much are you hurt? And there's no clear marker for that. However, I think the county has a difficult time with that argument made. Certainly, without any dispute, someone suffers emotional distress when a loved one dies. But I think it is within the realm of experience and probability that you can exacerbate that emotional distress by mistreating the body, mistreating the family of loved ones, or taking photos. Really, according to a plaintiff, at least, almost like it was a trophy hunting type of experience. And I think, think any rational person can separate out one trauma from another. Now, does that impact your damages, perhaps? Yes. But does it make it impossible to conceive that she suffered additional emotional distress because of these photos? I don't think that's true. Bryant's expert witness testified that Los Angeles cops and deputies keep what's called ghoul books with graphic photos of dead celebrities. Isn't that testimony about other officers prejudicial in this case? So I think it is prejudicial, but is it wrongfully prejudicial, I think, is the question, right? It certainly hurts, and in that way, it's prejudicial. But I think the question is, legally, is it prejudicial? I think when the defendants opened by saying that this was all part of a training exercise or the distribution was necessary, I think it opened the door to precisely this type of evidence because it certainly shines a light on, on the truth or not of the statement that the distribution of the taking of the photos and then the distribution was for the purpose of training or some necessary aid rather than being a entry in the ghoul book. The defense wanted to show Instagram photos of, you know, Brian's social media posts that show her and her family on lavish vacations and socializing with celebrities since the death of her husband. It hasn't come in so far. I don't know whether that would come in. If I had to handicap it, I would say that's not coming in. Because however rich and famous you are, and, and, and I understand they're playing that up, that doesn't mean that you can't suffer emotional distress. Now, if they're saying that these photos are inconsistent with a claim of emotional distress, then that's different. And so, as an example... It's well known in the insurance world that if someone is claiming back injury and collecting insurance, there will often be photos taken or video taken of that person lifting heavy boxes and so on. And that's perfectly admissible. But merely to show someone has the ability to live in a rich lifestyle isn't sufficient to rebut a claim of emotional distress. There is one photo of her on Halloween dressed as Cruella de Vil, that talks about the stages of grief, and she adds one called revenge. Might that have some bearing? Perhaps, but fairly minimal. The fact that she's seeking to vindicate her right, whether you call it revenge or you call it seeking to vindicate what you think is a wrongdoing, is, I think, well within the norm. Which side do you think has the better case here? Right now, I like plaintiff's chances, and let me tell you what I'm thinking. You have a case where lurid photos were taken, and there is a history of these photos being taken in the ghoul book. 
you have a case in which people have, at least as plaintiffs painted, have lied, outright lied about what they did with the photos and why. You have the defendant saying that these photos were taken and then distributed for the purposes of training. But you have them distributed at a bar. You have them distributed to a person playing a video game. You have them distributed at an awards ceremony. That doesn't make sense. You then have these arguments about spoliation of evidence. And I know that the defendants are saying that the reason that they immediately told people to remove it from their phone in order to mitigate any continuing harm. But there was no attempt to ensure that these photos were, in fact, destroyed. And it looks more like they were trying to cover up more than anything else. Included, though, in that, to add the extra spice, is you have at least one of the deputies, a high-up deputy, saying, should we really do this? We've gotten in trouble before for this. And I'm paraphrasing. And so even at that time, there's a, a bit of dissension about this. I would add just two, two more points. First of all, you know, Kobe Bryant is a well-known figure in Los Angeles. His wife is a well-known figure in Los Angeles, and no one thinks anything bad about them. Contrast that to the Los Angeles Police Department and the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office, where at least the Sheriff's Office has very recently been in the news for threatening a newspaper reporter, and otherwise doesn't necessarily have the best PR campaign in the world. I think these are the things that will weigh in plaintiff's favor. How much money they collect, how much money is awarded is a completely different question. But on the issue of liability, if I were handicapping it, I would put my money on plaintiff. And what do you think the biggest legal hurdle is for Bryant? I think that the biggest legal hurdle will be whether or not what happened here is consistent with a viable claim under the law. And defendants are certainly saying, with no exception, that this is not cognizable under the law, that it does not fall within the scope of prior cases. Los Angeles County agreed to pay $2.5 million to settle a similar case brought by two families whose relatives died in the crash. Does that indicate to you that Vanessa Bryan is asking for more than that, or there are reports that she just didn't want to settle? I don't know the answer. I at least believe that she must have been asking for more. Just finally, I'll I'll ask you about the jury. The jury includes a nun, someone who works in TV production, a college student, a real estate investor, a pharmaceutical researcher, a computer professor, and a restaurant host. So a real cross-section of L.A. That's a very educated jury for the county of L.A. It's a cross-section. It's both educated and some with work experience. But this is also a function of it being in federal court, where you, I think the voting rules supply the name for the juror. But in L.A. County, or the Central District of California, which includes more than L.A. County, um, you can get people who are much less educated and experienced in this jury. I tend to think that that also weighs in favor of plaintiff in this case. I don't think this is a case where you need to have a jury with less experience or less education. Thanks for being on the show. That's Warrington Parker, a partner at Crowell and Mooring. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. There has been a dramatic uptick in banning books. Book bans and challenges doubled from 2020 to 2021, according to the American Library Association. And it seems to reflect the growing polarization in our country. Joining me is First Amendment expert Eugene Volokh, a professor at UCLA Law School. Eugene, tell us about the one Supreme Court case about school libraries where the split was 4-4-1. Well, so let's just first step back. One thing that the court said in uh, uh, that case, basically all the justices agreed, that curriculum decisions, what to include in the reading materials for a class, are basically up to the uh, school. So the school can say, we just don't think this book is suitable for class for whatever reason. We just don't think this is the kind of book we should be studying in class. So that's one thing just to make clear. The other thing that the the court actually never did is use the word ban with regard to removal of books from the library, of school library, because it's not a ban. It's a choice about which books to include and which books to exclude in a situation where, of course, the library has to be making these choices all the time, right? First of all, it has only limited space. And second, unlike a public library, it's supposed to be focusing on books that are special interest and value to children. So the court understood that it wasn't a ban of a book. It was a choice to remove a book from the library. And the other thing that basically everybody in the court agreed on is that If the removal was on grounds that it was not age-suitable, for example, because it was pervasively vulgar, which is to say viewed by the school as pervasively vulgar, obviously people disagree on such matters, or otherwise not age-appropriate, that the school would be entitled to remove. The issue on which the court split 4-4 
is whether a library once, and by the way, pretty much everybody also agreed that a library can decide what books to get in the first place based on more or less whatever criteria the library wants. But the court split 4-4 on this question of whether a library can remove, or a school system can remove a book from the library because of the book's ideology. Could it say this book is unpatriotic? Or perhaps today it would be a question, is it anti-gay? Or is it unduly pro-gay? Or uh, setting aside whether, whether there's explicit sexual discussion there. Or whether it's racist, or whether it portrays smoking in a positive light, although maybe that's also a matter of age appropriateness. So in any event, uh, uh, that the court split on 4-4. How did that happen? Why 4-4 when there were nine justices? Well, four justices basically said the school can't discriminate based on ideology, more or less, in removing books. And because there's a dispute on the real reason why they discriminated based on ideology, this case should be sent back down for further fact-finding on what the real reason was. That was four justices, more or less the liberal justices. Then the more or less conservative justices, four of them, said school is perfectly free to discriminate based on ideology. Maybe not in extreme situations like if it's actually partisan. We won't have any books by Republican writers or any books by Democratic writers. But setting aside an extreme situation like that, a school is free to discriminate based on ideology. So therefore, there's no need to send the case back. Justice White was the swing vote, and here's what he said. There's this factual dispute as to what the reason was why uh, the school uh, uh, removed the books. If it turns out that it removed the books because they were pervasively vulgar or otherwise not age-appropriate, then no constitutional problem. Everybody agrees. If it turns out they did it for ideological reasons, then there might or might not be a constitutional problem. Could be that the liberal justices are right, could be conservative justices are right. I don't have to decide it. We don't have to decide it. The better route is to wait until we figure out the real reason for the removal and then resolve this First Amendment question of whether that reason is a permissible reason. And that's why he agreed with the liberals solely on the question of whether the case should be sent back down for further fact-finding. So he expressly declined to go along either with the dissent's position on the substantive issue or with the uh, liberals. I hesitate to call it a plurality, because plurality often means the opinion that got the most votes, but it actually got the same number of votes as the dissent, four, basically. So uh, White uh, concluded that uh, he didn't, didn't agree with either of them because he didn't agree that this issue should even be decided until necessary. So then do you agree in a case in Missouri a judge rejected the student's request for a preliminary injunction, and he questioned their reliance on Justice Brennan's plurality opinion in that case. So you he agree did. with that, that there really isn't a majority opinion to rely on there? There definitely is not a majority opinion to rely on in PICO. And in fact, quite a few lower courts have taken that view that basically there's nothing in PICO to follow. I mean, there are arguments that we should pay attention to, but they do not resolve this issue. This having been said, there was an Eighth Circuit opinion, of course, but he said even under that opinion, which might be said to kind of go along with a liberal's position, even if that opinion is still binding, it's an old case. Even so, books could be removed because of their pervasive vulgarity, which is to say pervasive sexual content, or I shouldn't even say pervasive, because of substantial sexual content. And these particular three books sure did have sexual content. And a school is entitled to say, 
We're not banning it. Students can get them in lots of other ways. But we're not going to be providing to our students books with that kind of sexual content. So besides sexual content, as you referred to, a lot of books are being challenged because they deal with LGBTQ issues or racism. Well, let's say just a school board came to you and said, we want to take these books off the shelves. What would be the reasons that you would say are legally substantial, would hold sure. up in court? Sure. So I would say, look, if you want to not include them in your curriculum, if you want to not include them as assigned or recommended readings, you are perfectly free to do that, setting aside a few situations under the Establishment Clause, I suppose, if they insist that everybody read the Bible as devotional material. Well, that's not allowed, but that's not a free speech issue. That's an Establishment Clause issue. So uh, setting that aside, if you think this is a bad history book, then you shouldn't assign it to have it be assigned in your classes. If you think that this material is highly sexually themed, and if you think for good reason it's highly sexually themed, you're not just making that up, but if, but if it is highly sexually themed, or otherwise you can show as age inappropriate, maybe because it describes things in a very violent, in a very graphic way, and it's an elementary school library, let's say, or some such, then in that case, you're also free to remove it. If you think that these are kind of portray or convey ideas that you disapprove of, whether ideas one way or the other about sexual orientation or about gender identity or about American history, about race or about environment or about whatever else, then, you know, it might be unconstitutional for you to remove them from public school library shelves. So is that so, then you're worried and you should be worried about a lawsuit in this kind of situation because there is a plausible claim against that, then just keep them on the shelves. Presumably most students don't go down to the library these days to read just random, say, history books. Maybe it would be good if more students did, but my sense is that uh, the problem most schools is students are reading too few of them rather than too many or the wrong kinds. And if it's not in the curriculum, it's probably not going to be much of an issue unless you try to exclude them and make it an issue, and then people will pay a lot more attention to them. Like, my understanding is that when this uh, school in Tennessee tried to remove, I think not from the library shelves, but from actual the curriculum, which they're perfectly free to do, remove Mouse, the graphic novel, because there were a few relatively mild vulgarities there. There was that, and there was nudity. And remember, this is nudity of a mouse. <laughs> of an anthropomorphic mouse, to be sure, but a mouse. Um, who I'm told in the state of nature tend to be nude. I think so, from everything uh, I know. Exactly. So the result was a lot more attention to mouse and a lot more people buying mouse, I am told. So I think it's a mistake for school boards to remove things from library shelves because of their ideas. I think it actually sends a bad message in many ways to students. And I think it practically has very little effect, and the symbolic effect may in fact be bad rather than good. And the practical effect may be counterproductive because of this, I guess what's called the band in Boston phenomenon. I am told that back in the day, when there really were bans and not just exclusion from library shelves, bans of movies, movies couldn't be shown if local censors forbade it, and I think maybe even books couldn't be sold. Boston was known as being a place that uh, would ban a lot of things in the grounds of their salacious. And those places proudly labeled their items as banned in Boston, in other cities, because that sort of showed that they were racy. In Virginia, there's a different situation. A former congressional member 
is trying to seek a ban on the sale of certain books that right. he says are obscene. So this would be stripping the right to sell a book from a Barnes & Noble, or you can't sell this book to a minor. Is right. that different? Yes, it is. I mean, that really is. There we are talking about banning. We're talking not just about the government choosing what to include in its school library, much less school curriculum. It's choosing what private parties can distribute to other private parties in public places. So my understanding of the Virginia lawsuit is that uh, there's already a law, I think, in Virginia that prohibits bookstores from selling material that's obscene as to minors to minors. So you don't need a specialized lawsuit for that, I think. Of course, then the question is, what is obscene as to minors? And the answer is, it has to be pretty pornographic. Simply something that has as part of a novel some sexual elements is not going to make the, the work obscene. So I think he's trying to get the stuff removed from the shelves even where minors could browse. So he actually got a court to issue a restraining order, finding there's probable cause to believe that a court of mist and fury is obscene for unrestricted viewing by minors. So there, it's not just at the checkout counter they have to card the buyer. It sounds like this was actually an attempt to try to get uh, the material from being even put on the shelves where minors could browse it, which is a much more serious burden. So the general rule is that a law that says you can't distribute so-called harmful to minors or more precisely obscene as to minors material to minors is constitutional. The Supreme Court so held 50 plus years ago. But to be obscene as to minors, it has to lack serious artistic or literary or scientific or political value for minors taken as a whole. It has to appeal to the shameful or morbid interest in sex of minors, again, taken as a whole. And it's got to be patently offensive under community standards when distributed uh, to minors because of the way it describes sex or perhaps excretion. So you can imagine, a, let's say, some porn magazine which is allowed for adults but can't be distributed to minors under that standard. However, if it's a well-received novel that in the process of describing what happened to the characters has sex scenes, then I think taken as a whole, this would be viewed as having serious value, especially for older minors, and taken as a whole would be viewed as not appealing to the shameful or morbid interest in sex. So I think that as a practical matter, that kind of law is actually quite narrow. And it looks like that lawsuit is trying to actually apply it to books that do not fit that narrow definition. And on top of that also, bar them from even being available on the normal shelves, which may be constitutionally permissible, again, as some at least obscenist to minors material, but is surely an even more clear burden on constitutional rights when applied to these kinds of novels, precisely because then that interferes with adults' ability to privately look at those books, uh, uh, as well as with minors. In this age where you can get almost anything on the Internet, why do you think the request to remove materials from schools or libraries hit a record since They've been counting it since 2001. Well, Is it politics? So let me broaden this question for you. Given that it's so easy to get things on the Internet, you might imagine that, A, people would say, what's the point of removing it from the library? It's still so easily accessible. And you might also say, people would say, why should we care if someone removes it from the library? It's still easily accessible. So you might ask, why are both advocates of these removals and enemies of these removals, adversaries of these removals, why are they so concerned about it? 
And I think the answer is that it is at least partly symbolic. I think a lot of people are really upset, not just that there is this highly sexually explicit material out there, but that their tax dollars in the schools that they run, that supposedly their representatives run, are being used to distribute what they view as material that's highly inappropriate for their children. And this is perfectly understandable. I mean, imagine, for example, there was a, a library had uh, Mein Kampf on its shelf. A public school uh, library had Mein Kampf on its shelf. I think nothing wrong with that. It's an important work of world politics. Uh, I certainly don't want anybody to be persuaded by it, but if you want a really rich and deep understanding of Nazi-era history, surely you have to read that. Of course, most high school students don't want a really rich understanding, but if they do, more power to them. Would it shock me if somebody says it's outrageous that we have Mein Kampf, not just in a library, but on a school library? It wouldn't shock me. It wouldn't surprise me. And if somebody were to say, well, wait a minute, you could probably Google for Mein Kampf and find all of these free copies, they'd say, well, okay, fine. Let them find it on Google. Let them not come up with it in the school library with kind of the school's imprimatur. So I could totally understand that. So likewise, with regard to situations where people think, you know, not only is there talk in these books about kind of sexual behavior that we would rather our children not engage in. But on top of that, it's really highly graphic. It's the kind of thing that we wouldn't want in our houses just because we view those passages as actually pornographic. But I think the main reasons are symbolic on both sides of the debate. Thanks so much, Eugene. That's Professor Eugene Volokh of UCLA Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.